0: Welcome to episode 392 with my guest, Michael Duffy. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I am currently uh, traveling, recording non-American guests for future episodes. So this uh, will be a little bit condensed in terms of surveys and, and things like that. I first want to tell you about one of our sponsors, The Great Courses Plus, Uh some of life's biggest mysteries are tied to the human mind, but where does our personality come from, and why do we act the way we do? Well, I imagine if you listen to this podcast, that's something that interests you. I have checked out The Great Courses Plus, and it's awesome. They have a ton of lectures on a variety of subjects, and they go deep into the subjects that they cover. Um, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com mental that's the great mental and you'll get a full month of unlimited access to their entire library. Um, I as I've shared before I did one on the Irish identity. I learned all about James Joyce and and um, uh, WB Yeats <laughs> Yeats <laughs> Yeats Oh I'm cringing that I'm gonna mispronounce something when I'm in when I'm in Ireland um, but yes. I can't recommend it enough, and listeners are digging The Great Courses Plus too. So uh, thousands of lectures on topics like psychology, history, science, and the arts, even cooking or photography, and you can watch or listen anytime from anywhere with The Great Courses Plus app. So check out The Mysteries of Human Behavior. And again, the address is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental to start your free month thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental, and I'll put all of these links I mention up on the website under our show notes. Want to also give some love to Care Of. If you take vitamins and you are tired of opening nine different bottles and remembering which one you took and which ones you should take, check out Care Of. It is a really cool monthly subscription vitamin service, and their stuff is made from effective quality ingredients that are personally tailored to your exact needs. Maybe I should take a vitamin for speech. Go take their quiz, uh, ask you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices, and then it makes it easy to figure out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. It just takes a couple of minutes. So there's no more, you know, worrying about which thing you're getting low on. And they give you a 30-day supply of individually wrapped packets that you can grab on the go, take them traveling uh, and it's about 20% less than similar brands at a local drug uh, or health food store. So uh, I've used it, and I think that's great. So for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter MENTAL. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter the code MENTAL for 25% off your first month of personalized vitamins. And, of course, I want to give some love to BetterHelp.com. Uh, it's great online therapy. I'll keep it short and sweet. Go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And if you're anything like the people I have talked to that have tried it, you will dig it, as I have. And you need to be over 18. Okay, I'm going to read... A quick survey and then we're gonna to get to the interview with uh, with Michael let's see what we have here I had one all right we'll read this one um, This is filled out by Ice Woman. It's a happy moment. I happen to be in the lucky minority of people who love their jobs. I'm an engineer and I design refrigeration systems that are used in arenas and in industrial applications. I got sent on my first international business trip this week. I know a lot of people hate going on business trips, but I felt really proud that they thought I was valuable enough to fly out to a job site. I struggle with low self-esteem, and this piece of evidence that I am, in fact, valued for my work made me believe in myself just a little bit more. I also had to push my comfort zones. Traveling alone, renting a car, driving around without GPS or data, figuring out how I should spend my time without supervision, all made me feel scared, but in the end, it made me feel a lot more capable. CBT for OCD has, if that's not the name of a, of a band, I don't know what it is. CBT for OCD has taught me to push through my fears, to run screaming at them, and to celebrate when I break through them. Today, I feel strong, capable, and independent, and also grateful. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame, and people will hate me
1: or size. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scott Face. If you can change somebody's life just by listening to vulnerability, uh, comes healing.
0: It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield,
1: and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview, saying, <laughs> "And I was like, think is hard, man. think so hard." And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs>
0: I'm here with uh, Michael Duffy, who is a Vietnam vet and uh, author of a book called From Chicago to Vietnam, A Memoir of War, and um, man, some of the descriptions in that book of things that you encountered in in Vietnam, uh, I, I can't imagine anybody goes through that and comes out unchanged.
1: Um, you are exactly right. For once? <laughs> well, I don't know you well enough, so <laughs> I don't know what happened yesterday. <laughs> first, first of all,
0: I want to say welcome to a Chicagoan. And can I just tell you how sickly comforting it was to hear somebody using the word jag off in a book? It's such a Chicago word. I don't hear it anywhere else. That guy's a that guy's a fucking jagoff. Oh my god.
1: Yeah, jagoff was uh, probably the first slur that was hurled at me in grade school. <laughs> um, so I went back and I thought, geez, should I ask my dad what that means? And uh, I didn't. I found out from a neighbor kid in the next apartment building over. But uh, yeah, we use it a lot in Chicago. I don't use it much anymore. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, so I was saying that I can't imagine anybody goes through that and comes out, uh, unchanged.
1: Well, that's right. And there's so many, um, um, you know, every war is different. Uh, this one happened to be the unpopular one. Um, so, you know, they weren't, um, sending us care packages and, and rally around the flag, uh, it, it it was difficult because we were, we all were listening to and reading the news back in the United States with the um, the tumult with the convention in Chicago, the Democratic National Convention, and all of the protests. So we had this angst we carried with us when that happened, but. Uh, some of the descriptions I put in the book, uh, over and above combat, which in itself is, um, you know, almost another world, the uh, just the living conditions, um, and
0: the bureaucracy. That was the thing that that really struck me. Uh, Michael opens his book with describing landing in Vietnam, and uh, <laughs> why did you tell them?
1: Um, yeah, so in McCord Air Force Base out of Washington, we were issued all our clothes for Vietnam. Jungle fatigues, silly hats, that jungle hat, combat boots. Um, so I went over in a khaki short sleeve shirt and khaki pants, landed in Cameron Bay about three in the morning, um, and they threw our duffel bags in a big pile. Everybody clawed through them. And I ended up as being the last man standing without a bag. So I had nothing. Um, no weapon? No. Now, the weapon's interesting because no one had a weapon. They are issued down at the company level. Certainly the I people see. that that uh, greeted us, yeah, they had weapons. But okay. the soldier, when he gets to his individual mm. company, or in my case, battery, an artillery battery unit, mm. that's when we were issued the weapons um but really you 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 stand out like a, a a big sore thumb with these bright khakis so um i was told on more than one occasion uh, lieutenant duffy you better get out of those khakis you look like a target uh
0: is it because you you look like an officer you, you l- looked
1: a little of both um we had little i was i had a gold bar and of course that reflects the sun but mainly everyone else had green fatigues and kind of blended in with uh, the olive drab of uh, our equipment in vietnam and i was walking around with these um khaki fatigues uh i don't know you know at first i was relaxed but when uh, the next morning i was sent to saigon and ran out on the tarmac. And that's where they told me the base was under attack. It was um, January 31st, 1968, the opening day of the Tet Offensive. Um, Which is the
0: shitstorm of the Vietnam War.
1: That's what changed everything. It changed politics. It changed the thinking. and, And more than anything, it changed the mind of the noted uh, news anchor walter cronkite um yeah so and it was a shitstorm in Tansinut Air airbase it was under attack it was small arms fire everybody was all the soldiers were on the berm facing outward um, helicopters uh, gunships flying over smoke billowing from uh saigon and it was i was just dazed and that's the first place uh when I went on a, a second uh aircraft, a helicopter, a Huey to go up to a place called Benoit, I was told, get out of those khakis. Uh, you look like a target, Lieutenant. And uh we uh we quickly flew over a little berm and then you could see Saigon. It was under attack. Uh the Viet Cong had penetrated the American embassy. Um, the uh, a large force came in and took over the Newport Bridge, and many Americans died there. Um, they had fighting at the racetrack, the Chinese section called Cholong, um, and in the cemeteries, and uh, the city was not secure. Mm-hmm. It may be around the embassy where they finally uh, uh, beat back that uh, Viet Cong offensive, but the city was still somewhat occupied, And, um, and and men were, men were dying, um, Americans. So, um, yeah, that was my introduction.
0: So let's talk about, you know, the, the part of your story that interests me the most, because, you know, we've, we've heard stories from people about Vietnam and the logistics of this and that. Um, but I, I, I would like to know emotionally, what's the arc that somebody goes through from I might get drafted to I'm drafted, or in your case, you en- enlisted, so you could choose which branch to go into, um, to landing, to your assignment, to some of the things you encountered, to transitioning back home. I, I, I would love to know the, the inner life, what you're thinking about yourself, what you're thinking about the world, your place in it, the war, our government, all those kinds of things.
1: Right. Um, Very good question. And uh, for me, um, I didn't want to go into the, the Army. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. What I wanted to do was do what I loved, which was painting, drawing. So I applied to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago.
0: Fantastic
1: school. That's what I wanted to do. Um, for some reason, they didn't want me, and I received a rejection letter. Now I had the chutzpah to take my letter. I got on the L train and went down, and I went into the school and I asked to the asked the secretary, "Can I speak to the guy who signed my rejection letter?" And after an hour and a half, he saw me. You know, so I asked him. I was I said, it, it, "Can you reconsider this?" And he kind of stumbled and said, "No." And then I said, "Well, why did you re?" Why did you reject me? Was it my academic performance in high school, or was it my art portfolio? And he said, both. (laughs) And I stormed out. The secretary was standing at the door, and she said, Mr. Duffy, it's time to go. So at any rate, what happened was I got home, and shortly thereafter, I received a draft notice. I still didn't want to go into the military, but with the draft notice... I knew from talking to my friends down in Albion Beach in Chicago and up in Rogers Park that the draft notice meant they could pick you for the Marines, for the Navy, um, for the Army, possibly the Air Force, but mainly the Marines. I didn't want
0: that. And they would assign you wherever they wanted to assign you within that, that branch.
1: Exactly. And what you're you know, what your job was. So I was pretty good in mathematics and I took some tests and uh, I said, well, I'd like to be a, a road surveyor. And he said, we can do that for you. So I did enlist and usurped the draft where it would have been potluck, went into the military and um, was sent to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana um, and for the initial training and then sent to Fort Sill for the... Uh, survey training hold, hold hold that thought we'll come we'll come
0: back to that but tell this story about bringing your draft card in to that room
1: um, well the draft board in our neighborhood was up a long flight of stairs let me describe this neighborhood in chicago it's a city neighborhood uh filled with brick apartment buildings some huge some small on every corner on the main street was a shop mainly filled with uh uh groceries and uh uh and and then we had a kosher delis the neighborhood was mainly jewish and irish um so um in fact i worked for uh a gentleman by the name of uh Nathan Ramus and his son was the uh, now-deceased famous uh, producer, uh, Harold Ramus. Oh, wow. Um, and I worked for his father. So Harold came in. He was bigger and older than me. He scared me all the time. but um, So I got to know that culture very well. So at 18, I trundled down to the draft board, and we filled out a card, um, name, address, age, And uh, there were two women there, and they pulled out a long file cabinet drawer and stuffed my card in alphabetically with everybody else's. Um, And they were like almost grandmother types, if I remember correctly, or they were older? They were older. Uh, This is a draft board left over from World War II in Korea. Remember, the men were gone, so most of the draft boards were run by women. Um, But here's what I found out later on and it it s- struck me in my stomach where I, I, I just had this gut reaction of anger. Um, a neighbor kid, uh, well, let me back up. Um, one of the sk- kids I went to school with in grade school got drafted, and um, I ran into him, oh, maybe 15 years, eight, 20 years after Vietnam. He went to Vietnam, too, and said he enlisted in the Army like me, because he got his draft board, went to his neighbors and told that uh, family. And the woman said, Why didn't you tell me before? I could have gotten you out. <sighs> my aunt runs, is one of the women in the draft board. I heard that and my stomach pitted out. So, what happened in probably any neighborhood in Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, the draft was corrupt. Um, And that's why they changed it to this lottery uh, bingo system where you run the balls with your birthdays. Uh, Because I guarantee you, the women or men who ran those draft boards didn't draft their cousins, their sons, their neighbors, their good friends. No, they had full uh, authority there of what Names to pull out.
0: It's it's like the opposite of the uh, city of Chicago assigning jobs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you I give guess. them only to your cousin, only to your nephew,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> or and, at
0: least how it used to be.
1: Well, yeah, I it probably is not too, too far. much different. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was pretty it, nepotism was the way, and it was political too. You if you had a um, had an uncle and on the fire department or uh, working for the streets and sanitation, you, you had a better chance of getting the job. Um, so the other thing is this question about, your question about the ARC, um, I registered for the draft and, and just went on and tried to get into the Art Institute. When I didn't, I said, I'll try again. Um, you know, So I had to work. Um, the, uh, I was apolitical. In those years.
0: If you had gotten into the Art Institute, would you have been able to avoid the draft? Of course. Okay, because there was a deferment for college students.
1: College students didn't have to go. And I, uh, that's all I applied for foolishly, I, but I wanted to get into the arts. And I didn't want to go to the junior college or I didn't want to mm-hmm. go to uh, some of the other schools around. Um, Chicago was easy, I could live at home. And that was phenomenal. Some of our, our great um, artists in, the, uh, in the, our nation went to that school, to include one of the teachers that taught me when I went to college, um, but I didn't get in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, as I said, I was apolitical. So I, you know, I'd watch what was going on. I said, what? I, I couldn't put two and two together. As most kids my age at 18 were interested in two things, Cars and girls. And if it wasn't that, it was girls and cars. And that's mm-hmm. all we talked about. So, you know, I was not political um, at all. And um, uh, when, you, I, when you stop and think
0: back to how unaware an 18 year old is of what. Well, is going to happen to him on a whim of a politician that perhaps just wants to get reelected. Yeah. What what kind of feelings come up? I'm sure you watch the the uh PBS documentary uh about Vietnam. Yeah, where, Ken Burns. Yeah and, and Lynn Novick and you yeah, and you Lynn hear Novick. the audio of every president yeah. saying this is unwinnable, but I have to think about the upcoming election. We can't we have to save face. And you think about men being sent and women into a fucking meat grinder. What feelings come up when you...
1: Well, they were latent. Um, even when I got back, I wanted to just stuff everything in that duffel bag like I did when I went over and begin my life as a student. And I did. Um, but it, it, they surfaced in different ways. I was in Colorado Springs going to a small private liberal arts college called Colorado College and they saved my life by uh, I I really believe that they let me in six months early and um, and during that six months when I was in college our unit was overrun many men were killed Um, at any rate uh, I go to Denver and I said "I, I to the VA up there and I said I can't sleep and he said, well, I've, I, you know, are you drinking coffee? And I said, yeah, no. <laughs> um, and I knew something was different because before I went to Vietnam, I, I couldn't be woken up. So there was a difference there. I recognized it early. And it, um, whether it was nerves or mental health or uh, the, uh, the grind of the war, um, probably all of the above but the va did not recognize that yet it, they hadn't they hadn't uh, they're not, they were they were not up to speed um so really those feelings about the politicians and the anger they did come out and it was about you know after i graduated from college i began painting about vietnam and painting these pictures and um I mean, one guy said, looked at it and said, oh my God, this looks like the angriest painting I've ever seen. And they were, and I painted a lot of them. Can you describe one of them? Oh, I had huge birds flying over palm trees, dropping things uh, into the jungle with screaming faces, and elongated arms and billowing smoke. Uh, just, you know, that's kind of a verbal, um, a verbal description of one of them that comes to mind. The other one I did, I did a couple of these. I had women with their arms up, you know, I called the title No VC, No VC. As you went through villages, they, the villagers, they didn't like the VC and they didn't like us. They wanted to just grow their crops. So they knew if we went through, no VC, they're not here. And uh, so I did one on that level, few of them.
0: Um, and also, if VC or weapons were discovered, th- their village would be burned sometimes.
1: Uh, yeah, well, sure. I, you saw that in the uh, Ken Burns-Lynn Novak uh, series on Vietnam. I was... I only walked with the infantry on uh, really a couple of occasions. I was switched back to work into to the artillery where we were closer. Uh, these are guns that send out these projectiles that then land in, um, most of them landed in muddy fields and blew up, You know rice paddies. Uh, Some may have made their mark, but that's what I did most of the time. And uh, the uh, army infantry and the marine infantry would walk out there into these village. But I knew about it. I've heard about it. Excuse me. Even some of the women in our little base would say no VC, no VC. They were. I said okay, no problem. Everything's everything's cool.
0: Do you have uh, any pictures of those paintings or any of the paintings
1: still? Um the paintings uh went into a museum in Chicago called the uh Vietnam Veterans Arts Museum and that started back about 1990 uh a group of veterans including a close friend of mine and um the the group had a had a uh a show at the Name Gallery in Chicago first time they showed Vietnam veterans' art dealing with the war. Um, And they even posted guards at the front of the gallery for fear. You know, it was very close to still the angst in the country, Mm -hmm. Um, but a a beautiful article was written by the New York Times, and I believe that was 1978 or nine. Mm -hmm. And then the museum came out of that, and it has now folded into a larger museum called the National Veterans Arts Museum in Chicago it's on Milwaukee Avenue mm-hmm. and i gave them my paintings mm-hmm. i kept a couple back i have a couple in my um storage unit do you, back in but Chicago. do you have
0: pictures of the ones that that you gave them because the reason i ask is i would like to um maybe make some of them available, some of the pictures available for our monthly uh, donors.
1: Yeah, let me... Um, see if you can find any. If you I'll, can, if, I'll see. Yeah. I know I have a few. You know, at one point that's all I did was paint about that, and then at one point it stopped. And I just said, I don't want them. And I, I was never... Uh, some of my fellow artists in this group were in love with their work. I never was. I said... I wanted it out of here.
0: And was it essentially just a thing you wanted up and out of you and away from you?
1: I guess so. I enjoyed the painting. I was skilled at painting. I knew how to. I did very well. You know, I, I knew how to mix colors, and um, and uh, I'm a very good draftsman. Um, these were mainly abstract, though. And uh, you know, I I'm not drawing the B-52 bomber as it comes over the South China Sea. It's just abstraction. The big black bird uh, represented the B-52 and I smeared um, smeared roof, uh, no it was, uh, yeah, roofing cement, black yucky cement on there and let it dry and I used chalkboard paint, which they don't sell anymore because we don't use chalkboards, um, and um, just slashed at it. (laughs) Uh, But at one point I grew out of it. I just said, no I, I want to move on, and uh, I think it helped. It helped me uh not be angry as much maybe. Um, so let's
0: um if you wouldn't mind reading a uh section from your book that i uh dog eared, uh,
1: okay, Paul, you picked it <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> I when, I, when too. I told him uh, when I asked him if he would mind reading um, a selection from the book. Uh, he said, "Oh, which one?" and I told him the one that he's gonna read, and he was like, "Oh, that one and uh, he told me that that was obviously the hardest one to to write um but uh to me it's the it's one of the more compelling passages in the in the book, so if you don't mind, sure, thank you paul and um, if you could give them a backstory on this, uh set it up kind of
1: right uh so he picked five pages. There's 321 pages in my book, and he picked these five. Um, so towards the end of my tour of duty, um, our unit, which consisted of six 105-millimeter artillery pieces, uh, really they they were the same pieces in Germany in World War II and in Korea. I had all the logbooks, and I was appointed executive officer. That means... I was in charge. The captain above me um, did a lot of work uh, work in their offices, moved things around, but I was the guy on the guns every day, every night. Every time they fired, I was behind them. Um, I made sure they uh, shot straight because if they don't shoot straight, um, innocent, innocent people without firearms get killed. Um, sometimes our own troops get killed so i had been working day and night trying to train another officer below me to take over my job and uh i had a tremendous conflict with uh some of the officers in there i was the youngest i didn't have a high i didn't have a college degree i was i had a high school diploma and 6 months of ocs so
0: which is officer
1: that's, yeah. In, in those years, all that's all you needed. Most of the people I served with were career military. They had a four-year degree, went through ROTCs. They were three, four years older than me. So it was difficult for me. But I took my job very seriously, and I was very good at it, meaning we did not make, I, I did not make mistakes. So one night, I was just, exhausted um after being up firing we'd fire every night uh 50 80 90 120 sometimes 300 rounds at night and the guns blasting away in muck and filth you couldn't sleep you couldn't take your boots off the radio would crackle with another fire mission you'd hear machine gun fire from the infantry and they were screaming and you really needed your wits because you could not make a mistake. So the fella I was training, I did not have confidence that this guy was, should do the right job and uh, be out on the guns every night. And I didn't want to hand over the battery. Reluctantly, I gave in to my fatigue and um, I, I uh, uh, gave him the battery that night. And there was a a horrible accident. And I'll read from my book now. When I found out what had happened, I ran to the gun and demanded to know who caused this monumental fuck-up. Where was Lieutenant Hart last night? I soon found out. He had spent the entire night in the FDC bunker, Fire Direction Control Bunker, with his buddy Owen in a feckless orgy of jokes, laughs, and coffee. Meanwhile, an exhausted gun crew had made a sequence of errors that, under proper supervision, could have been avoided. Hart was seduced by Owen to forget his responsibility and forget my nightly mantra to him as we walked the guns. Don't let the guns fire without supervision. I knew, I knew I would have caught this error and the mistake would not have happened. I audibly cursed myself for taking the night off. You stupid fucking shit, Duffy, I said to myself. I also felt betrayed with this arrogant attitude toward me. Owen dismissed all our training from Officers' Candidate School back in Fort Sill. Lieutenant Hart fell for Owen's picture of me as an overcautious micromanager. The guns fired without supervision. There was no officer at the guns as our SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, required. For the first time since he had arrived in our unit, Owen looked worried. His haughty attitude vanished. I stood in the FDC bunker demanding an explanation. He and Hart told me they were aware of the error shortly after it happened. The gunners informed FTC that an error probably occurred. Soon, after this horrible news, an emergency radio message came from our command ordering all the artillery batteries to check their fire or cease firing and review their missions. A military post in Saigon had reported seeing incoming rounds. Hart and Owen did not wake me because they believed nothing could be done until morning anyway. That was the only wise decision they had made. I was furious. I left the FTC bunker distraught and seething with anger. I walked to the headquarters bunker and waited as our new captain finished a discussion with the first sergeant. They both looked terrible. When he finished, he turned to me and in a somber voice told me that our guns were responsible for three civilian deaths. He asked me if I would travel to Saigon to survey the damage and talk to the family of the dead. I hesitated, thinking to myself that this visit to Saigon should be a job for lieutenant's Hart and Owen. He looked at me with panic in his face, then said, Duffy, I need to debrief Hart and Owen. Battalion headquarters is flying a major into our unit. This afternoon... He wants to review all of last night's fire mission. He hesitated, then said, The major wants to review this fuck-up himself. I said, Okay. That was the first and the last time I heard him say the word fuck-up. Lieutenant Nguyen, our Arvin neighbor, would accompany me as an interpreter because I could not speak or understand the Vietnamese language. I found a driver and a jeep and we were off to Saigon. We drove out of camp and headed north. The normally pleasant drive through the lush rice paddies was blurred with my anger. The road from Nabe to Saigon received light military traffic. Beyond our camp there was only the small Navy base. As we neared Saigon, I watched the rice paddies give way to lots filled with trash. The garbage the Americans left behind became the treasure of the Vietnamese scavengers. They would spend whole days looking for beer cans, lumber, nails, or any other commodity that was in short supply and that they could sell on the streets of Saigon. Lieutenant Wynne leaned forward and in broken English explained that the area in Saigon we were traveling into was very dangerous. He told me that he would handle things and we must not stay long. He took a deep drag off his cigarette and nodded to me. He looked worried as he repeated the words, We must not stay long. Very dangerous. We wound our way through the narrow streets of Saigon, kicking up dust from the unpaved streets. Women and children and old men stood in the portals of tin-roof shacks made of weathered boards and held together with rusty nails. They quietly watched us pass. I felt good about having Lieutenant Wynne with me. He could speak the language, and these people could see that I had one of them as a friend. But the people did not look friendly. They stared at me with blank eyes. My heart began to thump as fear rose in me. From my quick glance at the charts this morning, I knew that we were coming close to the point of impact. I didn't know what to expect. God, how I wish I had Owen and Hart with me so they could feel the despair here and experience this awful mission we passed a Saigon cowboy he flicked the butt of his cigarette at us as he yelled fuck you G.I. Lieutenant Wynne guided the driver through a series of narrow, narrow dirt streets to me this was nothing but a maze of confusing lanes where if left alone I would never find my way out there were no street signs, no curbs, no sidewalks. Everything seem, seemed to be built without thought or planning. Lieutenant Wynne had a driver stop near a narrow canal filled with a fetid liquid, the color of used motor oil. Barges and sampans were lined up against each bank of this narrow waterway. I saw people living on the vessel, their laundry hanging from ropes, stretched from the craft to a post on the dock. The stench! From the canal made me breathe through my mouth. I watched a young boy urinate off the side of a sampan sampan into the water. This channel was a dead-end slip built by the French businessmen at the turn of the 19th century. At one time, the canal provided a transfer point from land to sea for the bountiful Asian rubber product. The commercial vessels that had docked 50 years earlier were long gone, replaced by paint chipped wooden sampans, poverty, filth, and hopelessness had a new home here. Lieutenant Wynne looked at a piece of paper he held in his hand and motioned the driver toward a lane leading away from the canal. I secretly thanked him as we passed a group of children. They yelled in unison, Number one GI! That was a common signal to the GIs to toss candy, candy bar or gum. I was in no mood to toss candy today. Our driver slowed at, a, at Lieutenant Wynne's request and then stopped in front of a rusty wood and tin structure. It had an open portal with a long, narrow hall leading into living quarters. There was a second story to this house with a low ceiling. It was also made of corrugated tin and gray wood planking. A rope ladder provided access to the second floor. This was poverty in pure form, no running water, no electricity, and no sanitation. At first glance, the house looked unharmed. But after a closer look, I realized there was no roof. Our shells had fallen toward the rear of this shelter and scored a direct hit on this family's sleeping quarters. We were told that a young woman and her two children, a 12-year-old girl and a 9-year-old boy, had occupied the space. A small crowd gathered around us, and they all had expressions of sorrow on their faces. I began looking over the damage as Lieutenant Wynne talked to an old man with a wispy white beard. The old man, who I assumed to be a grandfather or some important family elder, was grateful we had come, and he accepted our words of sympathy from Lieutenant Wynne. Now he wanted us to view the bodies." We followed him in as he walked down a long passage. My breath became heavy, and all I wanted to do was leave. I did not want to follow this old man, and I didn't want to see the corpses. I had seen dead V.C. on the roads during the Tet Offensive. That didn't bother me, because they were armed combatants. But the thought of seeing a dead woman and her children made me feel wretched. We entered a dimly lit room. An old woman in the corner was sobbing and a few other people were standing near her. All eyes met mine as I entered, except those of the old woman. She continued sobbing quietly. I greeted the people with a nod and I lowered my head in an awkward sign of respect. The old man introduced us to the others and explained why we were there. My eyes fell on the woman in the corner again. She barely responded to our presence. The old man gestured toward a table in the room. It took me a moment before I realized why. There, on the kitchen table, was a white sheet with three forms beneath it, one larger than the others. The sheet was covered with flies, and they were buzzing around our heads. As I began to comprehend what I was viewing, my composure changed, and fear and panic replaced my ignorance. My my throat dried, and it was hard to swallow. The old man reached for the top of the sheet. Something inside of me pleaded with him to leave the bodies covered. God, how I wish Owen and Hart were there to smell the death and feel this grief. These innocent children had every right to live, and this woman, who was in the prime of her life, was now gone. Our guns had taken their lives because Hart and our crew had not done their jobs. The old man didn't hear my silent request, and he pulled back the sheet, revealing a horrific sight. I, started the life, I stared at the lifeless remains of a mother and her children, their bodies were charred beyond recognition. They looked like grotesque figures. They looked, they looked like grotesque clay figures fired in a kiln with a matte black glaze. Their arms and legs were contorted as if even in death. They were telling me how horrific the night before had been. I felt an Oh, I felt an overwhelming sense of guilt for taking last night off. I turned to the faces in the room. all eyes were now on me, even the woman in the corner had stopped sobbing, and she too was watching me. I felt for a moment that I had betrayed I felt for a moment that I had been betrayed by Lieutenant Wynne he had brought me to this room to punish me for the death our guns had brought to this family and to his people i glanced at him and realized that he was as uncomfortable as i was i turned to leave the room as i walked down the narrow narrow passage my head swelled and my anger was overwhelming I staggered onto the street and into a brilliant sunlight. It took all my effort to keep from vomiting. The dusty heat on the dirt road was now a relief. I tumbled into the jeep. My driver, half asleep, started the engine. Lieutenant Wynne followed close behind me, nodding his head to the somber crowd as they walked out into the daylight. I could tell he, too, wanted out of this hellish place. We silently drove back to the battery. I was sick with anger, not only at heart and own, but also at myself for taking the night off. This would not have happened had I been on duty. I kept thinking to myself that when I was on duty, I watched every move of the gun crew. I was aware of their fatigue. I knew where mistakes Could and did occur. I now felt an enormous sense of responsibility. I also had a stinging anger at the gun crew. They knew better than to cause a stupid mistake like this. The NCOs on duty should have checked the powder charge. The men fired the gun in a sloppy, unthinking, and careless manner. They killed three innocent people and then they went to bed. After we arrived back at our compound, I passed Owen, and I stopped him. I told him of the scene I had witnessed in Saigon. Owen all but shrugged, and then he turned and walked away. I was left alone with this horrible image. I wanted to share this picture with someone and pass along my sorrow and my rage. I called the gun crew into our empty club for a meeting. They slowly filed in, one by one. They knew I had just returned from Saigon. They were quiet and reserved. They sat and gave me their full attention. I started by asking each one of them if they had children at home. Each man looked at me and spoke. Some had some small infants, some had toddlers. One man had a six-year-old girl. The others shook their heads. I persisted. What about a niece or a nephew? They nodded their heads. They all knew someone at home of a young age. By this time, they looked puzzled. They thought I was going to give them an ass-chewing and a punishment, maybe even a letter of reprimand. I continued. I asked the men gathered in front of me to picture these children they loved and cared for back at home. I waited a moment, and then I asked, ''Now, do you all have a picture?'' Of a child in your mind, they all nodded, and I went on now. I want you to picture that child burned and twisted in some horrible state of death because that's what I saw this morning. This was the result of your carelessness and disregard for procedure. They looked away from me, my voice cracked, and I stopped talking. I regained my composure. Then, with a wave of my arm, I dismissed the group. They quietly filed out. I hoped my words gave them some feeling of the gravity of their error. There wasn't a punishment I could think of that would match the consequences of this horrendous mistake. Later that night, I found myself behind one of our buildings near our generator. It hummed away as tears filled my eyes. Physically, I was spent, and emotionally, I was exhausted. I felt I was drowning in a sea of responsibility that I never could have imagined, and it was crushing me. I was staggering under the weight of decisions I did not want to make. I longed for the comfort of Chicago. For a moment, I thought of the familiarity of my old old neighborhood of my close friend Joe Kiefer and our political talks in Cindy Sue's coffee shop. I thought of Chris, my old girlfriend, and our good times riding around in her father's Buick. Vietnam was overwhelming and now I carried one more horrifying image. God, how I wanted to go home.
0: Thanks, Michael what uh as you were reading that did were you thinking or or feeling did anything kind of come up
1: of course um, i didn't want to read it, uh, but I thank you for doing that yeah, um I wrote it and read it and reread it i'll bet a hundred and fifty times before I got that specific passage down where i felt it would transfer to the reader the emotions that i felt and yes i just felt them again it's still painful to uh to read that very much so you know um as are some of the other mm-hmm. passages in this book um and i uh i think Looking back, um, I was you know a young kid with a high school diploma and six months of o c s that could never prepare someone to take on that challenge and um, i looking back now, I know why they gave me that job because unlike those other lieutenants. I took it seriously. I took responsibility, and I I watched, I watched those guns like a hawk to make sure um, they fired correctly. Um. So, yeah, it brings up some, uh, stirs up the old pot.
0: Yeah, you know, when when you were behind those guns on a typical day. How did you deal with the thought that even the ones that were aimed correctly were taking lives?
1: Well, um, I don't. I, I didn't think. Would did
0: you just about compartmentalize it?
1: it? Well, you have to. Uh, and secondly, quite often when we fired, we would have the infantry on the radio, and you could hear that they were under attack. Right, and they were calling in artillery, and they said we're they're coming towards us. I see we're getting you know a a, a wave of them coming at us. Here are the coordinates, please, you know hurry. And um, there's another spot in there where I was I was sick with amoebic dysentery and I I couldn't even function, and I remember this screaming on the phone: "We need a fire! We need help!" So you kind of transfer that all of a sudden you're there and you need, these guys will be dead. Unless you drop these artillery, yeah, the artillery might kill the enemy, but it might fall and then keep them from coming into the infantry.
0: Right. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not trying to assign any type of judgment. I just yeah. want to know what somebody experiences when they're yeah. in well, the situations that, that you...
1: Yeah, I uh, um, I really just wanted to fire them correctly. Many of the, t- I, I would guess, the vast, the vast majority of artillery rounds we fired each night didn't hurt anyone, didn't kill anyone. A lot of them were called harassment and interdiction fires where it was a road crossing where they thought VC might be. Now, remember... Vietnam in in those years had a curfew. And the only ones out would have been Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. You went into your farmhouse, your hut, you didn't come out. If you were in Saigon, you didn't go on those streets. Uh, Of course, we didn't fire artillery into Saigon. Um, We were firing back out where the infantry was walking. So there were not a lot of people Mm -hmm. out. Um, And if they were... They were probably the bad guys that were trying to kill us. Um, and we were firing where they might have collected. Um, I talk about the rocket attack that came out of the jungles one night. Um, you know, they set it up, and so we fired back at them, and now we knew that that was an area where they, they could uh, attack us. The feeling you have when you're there is to, to do the job. And I would uh, imagine it would be a lot different for an infantryman, um, where I was in the artillery. I was back maybe six, seven miles firing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they would probably have a different answer to that question. Yeah. Um, but by this time, uh, that arc that you talked about earlier in the program, now I wanted to go home. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I was listening to the radio and hearing uh, crazy protests in Chicago and the 68 convention, and I'm going, what? what's going on back there? Um, Up until that
0: point, had you felt that the war was just and necessary?
1: I felt I had a duty uh, to go in as an American citizen. Um, I remember the words and you and your listeners might remember uh, the author, um, um, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I felt, okay, I got my draft notice, that's what I'm doing. Um, I, I was most of the time apolitical and really not up on uh, on the war, I, I was not sophisticated enough with my high school diploma to say, I didn't know where Vietnam was. I needed to get a map out. Yeah, Vietnam, wh- where's this place?
0: Uh, for our younger listeners, uh, the, the author he's referring to is uh, uh, President John F. Kennedy, who said it in his uh, inauguration speech. And, um, the, and the other thing I want to say to uh some of our younger listeners that might not know this. Um, these were the last days for people having faith in their government. Um, the, from the mid sixties through Watergate, which was roughly kind of wrapped up in 74, 75. Um, America got its cherry popped, um, in many ways. Um, it, How would you phrase it?
1: Well, the bright light of the press came into the White House and Congress and we saw what we thought was a steady ship going through the sea really wasn't that steady ship. And there was at times more interest in getting elected than bringing these young men home to the United States um, and ending that war And by um, three
0: presidents in a row Kennedy Johnson and Nixon are all there are there are phone transcripts of all three of them saying "I know I can't win this war, but I've got an election to think about which is nauseating to think about.
1: Right. I think the worst part uh, was uh, the end there when President Nixon came up with the slogan, Peace with Honor. Well, honor meant a lot more Americans were going to stay over there. And um, many of them died. Many of them lost a limb, lost their eyesight. Um, it, it was... Uh, um,
0: and Vietnamese.
1: Uh, many yeah, and civilians too, um, so it 's tragic that they e, any uh, well any of them couldn 't have set up uh, said this is an error. we need to get out now we 'll give the equipment to the South Vietnamese army, and they can fight their own war. Remember, South Vietnam was a sovereign country, and North Vietnam was a sovereign country. And the North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam. So this, uh, when we left, it was still, South Vietnam was still alive as a government. It took two years then for them to fall. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have pulled out and just said, here's the equipment South Vietnam. Nixon could have done it in 1970. He didn't. And um, yeah. Uh, not only that, in 1968, I remember listening on the radio three important news items. First one uh, would have been the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, and it was just, I'm thinking, whoa, what what happened here? Um, I heard him speak in Chicago, in uh, 1965. And uh, he really interested me as a as a, a powerful figure. And the high school I went to, uh, wo- I was taught by French Christian brothers. And in the summer, some of them went down and worked in the South in the voting rights uh, march. And we were taught, uh, we were reading some heavy literature back then, black like me, and in no uncertain terms, he was doing the right thing. Um, So that was the message we got. Um, And that was horrible. But the next one was Bobby Kennedy, who I thought, well, this guy might bring me home. But the, the real worst one for me was when I heard Lyndon Johnson on the radio say, I will not accept and I will not uh, put my name in uh, and accept the nomination for president of the Dem- uh, of the United States, and I thought this guy sends all of us over here and then he quits. Okay, I'm done. It's not working.
0: What did you What did you think or feel Anger. in that moment?
1: Anger. I had a little portable radio and I'm sitting in a filthy uh, sandbag filled with mud. Uh, our FDC bunker, and I heard it on the radio, and I, that coward, that coward, he takes on this, he wraps up the military, he did it, the, mil- uh, the generals didn't do it summarily, they have to go to the president, wraps it up for 500,000 troops, and then s- instead of saying, this is an error, come on home, you know, I'm out of here. Pretty angry. So that whole year was tumult. So let's go to,
0: let's wrap it up with when you come home. Um, give me some moments post-Vietnam. Could even be something that happened last week where the war has changed who you are, how you view yourself, the world, maybe even how you sleep, how you walk down the street, how you experience the 4th of July.
1: Friends of yours, Um yeah, uh, good questions. Fourth um, of July, I never wanted to go to another fireworks display uh, to answer that quick quickly. Is uh, there a Vietnam vet that enjoys the Fourth of July? I've gotten better because I raised three daughters, and, oh, we're going to the... I said, mm, okay. <laughs> and as long as I sit not next to them blowing off. Um, but I have some friends, you know... I raised my family in the suburb of Chicago and of course hey we're going to have a big fireworks display in my backyard come on over and I said yeah you kids go on over I'll stay home um but uh sleep finally came and uh it you know a, a lot of uh a lot of work there um, What
0: kind of work did you put in and when did sleep come?
1: Well in the late 70s uh the via uh the veterans Administration put together these vet centers where uh, groups, and I was living in Denver at that time. Groups of veterans would talk about their experiences. That really helped. Um, Can you give me some moments from that? Yeah. Ha- um, if you remember any particular well, ones? essentially, telling about a lot of the stories I put in the book, but um, I just f- was interesting to see some of the different personalities in those uh, those those groups. Some guys felt anger because they said, we could have won the war had we just stayed there. And I'm thinking to myself, really? I don't think so. Um, We had a half a million men, and I couldn't go outside the barbed wire to get a cup of coffee. That's how dangerous it was. Um, We had those type of GIs. We had others that uh, were just uh, focused on their marriage, which was dissolving, and they didn't understand why. A lot of that. This a lot of, these a lot groups, of substance abuse. Um. Yeah. Not so much. We didn't bring no? that up. You know. I'll tell you what. They asked me. Oh, yeah. How much dope did you smoke? And I said I didn't smoke. I didn't. I didn't go near it. I didn't go near anything because. Remember these guns. Yeah. Now all I have to do is uh, you know smoke a joint and drop around in uh, Westmoreland's tent. You know, <laughs> no, I I was on, and that night that the passage I read, had I been awake, this that would not have happened because I know how it happened, and I I don't explain that. I mean, maybe I did. I don't remember. Uh, you'll have to read the book to yes. find out
0: how it happened. You did. You did that. The wrong charge yeah. was put in. They right. borrowed ammunition from the the. Yeah, uh,
1: uh, but. Uh, so, um, that would not have happened. So that's why you know. Yeah, yes. I drink beer, and I spent one night in Saigon. I think you read about that. Mm-hmm. Your listeners would love that chapter. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> so uh, the the groups were cathartic. Very you got much so. started yeah. getting some help from yeah. the VA. Yeah.
1: Um, so they did come up to the plate, and as I mentioned earlier, when I got back, 1960. In 1969, they went up. They didn't know what was wrong, but they did come, They, the Veterans Administration did see a problem and they addressed it with these vet centers. Um, and I really have nothing but praise, nothing but praise for the uh, Veterans Administration in this country. They have treated me and my fellow vets that I've talked to with respect and they have answered our questions, whether it be the Agent Orange question or the post-traumatic stress questions. They've done a good job. Now, that's not to say that down in some parts of the country somebody fudged some papers in one hospital to make it look better. That happens anywhere. Mm. That happens in any corporation. They cut a corner. But by and large, I have nothing but praise for the Veterans Administration.
0: Well, that's that's refreshing to hear because uh, um, the the people that I talk to and the stories that I've read, not necessarily Vietnam vets, but Gulf War veterans, um, uh, I hear a lot of frustration and them trying to seek uh, mental health help and being given, uh, you know, an an appointment five months from now uh, when they're in a state of uh, uh, crisis um so i imagine yes it varies but thank god you you got the help that that you uh, yeah. needed. what what um what was it like when you saw the uh the vietnam memorial
1: oh very moving yeah i saw it only once
0: when it was in chicago
1: no no not that would have been the facsimile of the uh the Vietnam Memorial, the main one in Washington, D.C. Oh,
0: oh, that's right, because I I saw the one in Chicago.
1: Yeah, they moved one around. It's a fraction of the size. But the one in Washington was designed by a Yale art student by the name of Maya Lin. And uh, she won it, and there was tremendous controversy about it. Uh, I remember um, James Watt was the Interior Secretary, and somebody said, it'll be a black scar in the earth. Well, it has, it is absolutely stunning, and my only tragedy is I had a young man die in my arms, and I never got his name, so I don't even know where this guy is. And I, I discussed that. Maybe you remember that story in there. Uh, but my captain, the captain uh, who uh, who. Took over just about when I was ready to leave. We got to be very good friends, and unfortunately, he was killed. And I, I, I go up to his name and see him. And, and what, name. what is it? Can you describe uh, what, what you feel just, when you see that? Just tragedy and sorrow, and you know, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's like going into a cemetery and seeing somebody you loved. Uh, you know, it's just sorrow. You know, and
0: uh... well, I could tell you as a uh, civilian and somebody who was too young to know anybody, uh, when it, this facsimile came to Chicago, I went on my lunch break, and I thought, oh, you know, it'll be interesting. It might be a little boring, and within five minutes, I had tears streaming down my face. So, I, and I would see vets um, oh, yeah. looking at it, and and I remember thinking to myself, if I Am experiencing these emotions. What is it like for them?
1: Yeah, I stay away from it. I mean, I know I the traveling wall. I I know it, what it is, and I think it's phenomenal that they can bring that wall to city to city. Uh, but I went to the the real one, and I just don't want to go back. Yeah, anytime soon. I will maybe mm-hmm. down the road, um, and I'll I'll point out there's over fifty eight thousand three hundred men. And women mm-hmm. that are on that wall, um, and these were the valiant uh, nurses that a lot of them would work under combat conditions and get mortared and get killed. Um, you know, they were they were tough tough women that had a horrible horrible job. Yeah. I mean, thank God I could take this kid and say, here, he's yours now. That mm-hmm. kid that was. Uh, got blasted in the convoy. So uh, nothing nothing but respect for them, too.
0: Would you say that of all the things that have helped you, um, the most helpful has, has been the groups and, and co- connecting to other vets, or is there something else, or is it just hard to even say what, what was more helpful?
1: No, I know exactly what, the one thing, and I shouldn't say thing, person was that helped me through this, and that was my wife, my deceased wife. And, um, uh, you know, she deserves a medal, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh, just putting up with me. So um, it was that support. Can you give
0: us some snapshots of that?
1: Well, uh, early on when I met her, we weren't even married. She knew I was having trouble sleeping. She said, well, let's go see. I I hear there's a... I didn't have health insurance at that time. Um, the VA at that point didn't know what was going on. They said, we don't know, you know, uh, why you can't sleep. Here's some sleeping pills. <clears throat> so at any rate, she's brought me to a, a, a group and... Uh, no, it wasn't a group. It was a some fellow that was... Teaching transcendental meditation, which was very popular back then, mm. and I—he uh, sh- taught me how to start with a mantra. It's not unlike the mindfulness, which is so popular today. Yes. And yeah. uh, you know, my my uh, my, she wasn't my wife then. She says, "Let's try this," and you know what? It helped. Yeah. It just kind of calming, and it's, and uh, so she was the one that did that, and then. Um, you know, throughout the life, she was very supportive of everything. The book I started writing way back, when, you know, uh, and she helped me with it. And, you know, I'd say, read this, what do you think? And with my, all my paintings uh, about Vietnam, which I did many, many paintings. Um, and there in Chicago at that Veterans Arts Museum, um, you know, I'd call her down into my basement. I'd say, what do you think of this one? Tell me about that. So that was the most... Yeah. important person that helped me kind of get out of the funk of Vietnam yeah. but it never leaves you it never yeah, leaves how could you
0: it? how could it
1: no I mean it's like a motion picture right in your face so what does help you move is time and then I raised a family and that helped um, my wife and, and just work I still work I love work you know
0: well, Michael, I want to thank you for coming and, and sharing your story. The, uh, audio dropped out right there as we were was saying goodbye. So I'm, uh, I'm picking it up here and, uh, thanking, thanking Michael again for sharing. And, uh, wow, some of the specifics of his experiences he details them, not only in this episode, but in his book, uh, makes it so real. And I, I always wish that when it comes to something Difficult and traumatic, and something that requires a lot of thought before we do it. Something like war that we would hear from people who have experienced it in ways like this that are really detailed. Which is why I think it is so fucked up that we that the press has has decided to not push to see to photograph coffins when we are in a war of our choosing. But I don't want to go off on a political rant right now, but thank you. Thank you, Michael. And I just want to read a quick survey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself prodigy as fuck. Well, he has AF, and I'm going to assume it means uh, as fuck. He's straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Have suspicion of being raped while blacked out. I feel a mix of powerlessness and nonchalance. He's been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, here's a couple. Once I had a friend locked in a basement with a broom handle in his ass, and I was so afraid that I hung out with the guy who did it. We broke into houses, stealing money and drugs. We were all about 10 years old. I was too scared to help my friend in fear of not being accepted by this demented, racist group of people uh, associated with the guy's older brother's friends group. I would let him beat me up and give him money. That was my parents as well. Also, my mom is a Scientologist and just said that I could be, quote, audited any positive experiences with the abusers? Absolutely. I struggle with my passivity in this, but I like to think I'm learning or at least taking some kind of burden off humanity as a whole, as if me dealing with fucked up people will be my contribution. I actually pride myself on bearing the, quote, brunt. Uh, I'm going to give you some tough love here. That is a cop-out for your codependence and fear of confrontation. And more than more than that, you are worthy of not having to anoint yourself that person. And I say that because I, I have gone that route of avoiding confrontation for fear of getting beaten up or yelled at. And, you know, you can get your discomfort up front or you can have it stretched over a lifetime and magnified and i prefer to learn tools to set boundaries and deal with toxic people rather than feeling like i'm a nice person by tolerating them because you know what if somebody's toxic and everybody rolls over around them that person is never going to get a wake up call the 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 chance that that person will ever change is next to zero if nobody ever stands up to that person. But if everybody in their life starts bailing on them, it's not a guarantee that person's going to take a look at themselves, but it increases the chance that they're going to take a look at themselves. And so actually by standing up to people, we are doing them a potential service. And if you talk to some people who have recovered from drug addiction or any kind of compulsive behavior, they will tell you that somebody telling them the truth or setting a boundary with them might have saved their life darkest thoughts as i read this i'm tempted to go darker of course uh and parentheses not acting on them usually just leaving cryptic messages in my pockets as i hang from a tree near the still smoldering house of which i just tormented a recently dead family in all kinds of rape for years and psychological scenarios my imagination is sick you know, a lot of us have sick imaginations. It's what we do with it that matters. And don't ever judge yourself for the scenarios that your brain is painting. The the, the time to be alarmed is when you find yourself making plans towards these sick scenarios where people would be hurt or you would be hurting people. Um, darkest secrets. I licked a girl's butthole while she was passed out. I'm an... Inc- Uh, I'm incredibly good at being credible, but if I'm sober and you have money that I can steal, it will be spent on alcohol. Um, It sounds like getting sober would be a really good place to start. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Usually young girl starts getting, usually young girl gets started off being adventurous, turns to getting way in over her head, turns out, right gang raped white american girls who are slightly unconventionally attractive smart enough to feel shame uh one porn comes to mind when they make her sing nursery rhymes while getting fucked in the ass and you can see her remember a time when she didn't have to resort to that and starts to cry a little as she meagerly sings makes me feel like i'm sick and the whole world is sick and i bet people get crazier which is crazy it's what they do with it, man. If if there is pornography, and this is just my opinion, where consenting people are role-playing something like that, I don't see anything wrong with somebody getting off on that as long as it's not taking away from other areas of their life. It is If it is just pure fantasy for a release, and it's not compulsive and... Difficult to control the frequency or length with which they engage in those fantasies. Um, it can it can be healing for a person to embrace some fantasies, and you know obviously there's there's no hard and fast. Uh, you know, one thing applies to everybody, but as a whole, there's so much shame around what gets us off, and. After reading over 8,000 of these surveys over the last eight years, I can tell you everybody has something that pushes their button and makes them come really hard that they would be ashamed to admit to a group of people at a cocktail party. I think I just got an idea for my next theme party. Anyway... Uh, What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to And, and just to pause if if like I said if these fantasies are becoming things that you are obsessed with that is something that is a red flag for you to go get help immediately because if you don't it could lead to escalating behavior and then you actually hurting someone. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would say a lot of things to the racist psychopaths I grew up with, but they know where my parents live, and I don't want retaliation. Also, I'd like to sway my mom into not abiding by Scientology with immediately yelling or crying. I would like to see you separate from people that cause you pain, or at least create some distance instead of fantasizing about changing them. And that's that's where the crazy of codependency lives, is us waiting for someone else to change because we think if they change, we'll experience peace or happiness. And what it usually is, is a distraction from us looking at our own pain. What, if anything, do you wish for to quit drinking uh, but actually, and then it just ends there. I don't know if that's a... Um, I think that'd be a great place to start, man. You might be able to untangle a lot of these feelings if you get sober. Get your head straight. Start dealing with the fears and the anger that are underneath addiction. Because it's not about the drink or the drug or the, you know, the whatever the addiction is. It's, it's about the feelings underneath it and finding tools to deal with it instead of numbing ourselves with a compulsive behavior. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Sometimes I'll let a little go to friends I feel comfortable with, but I always spin it like it's funny or I have it under control and it doesn't affect me. I'm a good liar. I can even make you think I'm lying when I'm being truthful. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Like I want to hear it on the podcast and that I'm a kook for wanting that. Uh, You're not a kook for wanting that, man. We all want to be seen. I mean, fuck, part of the reason I started this podcast is half of it was I wanted to let people know they're not alone. And the other half of it is I wanted to be seen and validated. And I still have that part of me. Uh, And continuing, and that all this will amount to some embellished story I tell to someone to make me think I'm proving how great I am. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. Don't try to save or help or prove anything to fucked up people. You do you, boo-boo. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And um, I don't have a happy moment or an awful some moment or something to uh, send you out with. Uh, So I will just say that I am... Grateful for the people that I have in my life. And you, the listeners, are a large part of that because I get um, to see myself through you, through your surveys, through your interviews, through your emails to me, and it has helped me grow. And I don't know if that sounds like a load of uh, hokey bullshit, but it's not and i am truly truly grateful for you and um, just never forget that you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know
1: is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way